two paranormal investigators who delve into the depths of the famous and not-so-famous cases of Moida ghosts, legends, and lore with a healthy dose of debunking. Debunking. We've, we've got a famous one today, actually. Ooh, we sure do. We do. Uh, and it's going to be part one of two. We love a double hitter. We do. We've been doing, we do some double hitters every so often. You did a double hitter not too long ago. Yeah. I feel like if we try to fit everything into one episode, it's going to be way too long. That has bit us in the butt a few times where we've been like, we can do this in one. And, you know, two and a half hours later. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is one uh, I've had people request uh, before. It is also one of the most notorious unsolved murders in the United States. It's a moida. It's a moida. We've been doing a lot of uh, kind of like spooky supernatural and, and weird lately. So it's kind of fun to do a, true a little crime. moida, a little true crime. Kim does love her true crime. Yes. And we actually, fun fact, just to throw it in there, we just got invited to do a live podcast at the Pacific Northwest True Crime Fest next year. We totally did. In October 2022. Very excited for that. We'll talk about it later. But just FYI, look for us there. Yeah. Uh, So today we're going to be talking about the murder of Elizabeth Short, also known as the Black Dahlia. Black Dahlia. Yeah. Gabby, you grew up in the L.A. area. I sure did. So is this a case that like you heard much about growing up or, or you knew a lot about? I did, but it was a lot of, like, hearsay, and Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what you get when you get really famous cases like this. Um, I do remember going to the Museum of Death in L.A. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also one in New Orleans. I went to the one in New Orleans. I was thinking of the New Orleans one because of uh, Mr. Mr. Baggins. (laughs) Yep. Uh, There's two. They're owned by the same people. Um, But the Museum of Death in L.A. actually has, like, actual photographs of the Black Dahlia, like, murder scene, which is pretty wild. Um, I actually have a point about that uh, in my notes about how how brutal the crime scene photos are. I'm sure you're going to get to that. I can't wait for it. But I also, um, I remember when we were doing the Cecil Hotel, Mm -hmm. there's some legend and lore associated with Elizabeth Short there, which we very quickly debunked uh but she pops Scully. up yeah. she pops up every now and then it's it's definitely one of those notorious cases in that vicinity well and, and that was i think i don't know why i ever remain surprised when i'm looking into a historic case like how much not just contradictory information out there but how much misinformation there is mm-hmm. uh how much is reported perpetuated because there there's some there's published books there was newspaper articles that had just a gross misrepresentation of evidence 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 uh so i'm doing my best to report the evidence as i was able to kind of verify sure uh january 15th 1947 at about 10 a.m wednesday morning Betty Sursinger, it's a good name. That's a Sursinger she is. Sursinger she is. Fur Sursinger. Did you like that one? I did. That was, <laughs> that was for you. you. She is walking with her three-year-old daughter, Anne, who's uh, in a stroller, to pick up her husband's shoes. 
they were getting repaired. Not like he threw them out the window and was like, go pick those up, woman. Where where did they go? (laughs) No, they were, they were like getting repaired at the, at the sushi, at the nice, at the shoe (laughs) shop. Shoe, shoe shop. She shows Sersinger by the seashore. Shoe shop. So she's on a sidewalk in Lamert Park. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. She notices glass on the sidewalk, so she's trying to move around it because, you know, you don't want to go over that with your stroller. And she sees some flies buzzing over something to the side. A few feet from the sidewalk, there appeared to be a mannequin in the grass uh, that was cut into two parts. Mm. Now, in the year 2021, we all understand anytime you spot something and think, that must be a mannequin. It's probably a dead body. Yeah, it's probably a dead body. Poor Betty, though. It's 1947. She didn't know this yet. And she, I actually thought this was kind of charming. She had the best of intentions. She was afraid the mannequin would scare children. Oh. So she was like, I better get a closer look and maybe do something about it. But when she got closer, she realized that she was not looking at a mannequin, but the corpse of a young woman. Ugh. And she would later say, my goodness, it was so white. It didn't look like anything more than perhaps an artificial model. It was so white and separated in the middle. I noticed the dark hair and this white, white form. So Betty hopped over to a nearby home. She knocked on the door, asked to phone the police. And either the dispatcher didn't really understand what Betty was conveying. And to be fair, like if you just found a, not just a dead body, But like a real dead body. (laughs) Like really in two pieces dead body. In two pieces. Like this isn't, you know, somebody, somebody had a heart attack and died in front of you. This is like, there was, there was two pieces to this body. I might not be the most eloquent in how I describe this. Sure. Maybe I would. Who knows? Um, It's also possible that the dispatcher just 100% misunderstood what was being said. But it got reported as a 2-390-W-415. In police code, this is basically saying there's a drunk woman passed out naked. Oh, no. Did they say that she was in two pieces? No. That is, they don't have a code for that. Oh, no. Of course so they I guess they, they should, but they sure. do not. Now they do. Um, but, like, already, so here's where things start to get a little interesting about the exact accounting. Because uh, I found an article, a newspaper article that it was the Santa Rosa Republican. <laughs> it ran on January 15th of 1947, the same day body was discovered. And it said the following, a passing motorist noticed the body lying just off the sidewalk in a vacant lot in a newly developed Southwest Los Angeles residential district. He notified a woman in a nearby house who telephoned police. Yeah. That's not what happened. <laughs> huh? So, I mean, get right from the get-go, you see how quickly misinformation is being spread. And again, that was in a newspaper. Wow. Uh, So, Betty, fun side note, she phones the police, and then she goes on her merry way to continue getting her husband's shoes. She's unfazed. She's unfazed. Wow. Plus, I mean, I don't know, maybe he's real nasty when she doesn't pick up his shoes. He's real cranky. Dead body won't stop her. Dead body won't stop her. Uh... So the call came in about 10.55 a.m., and at 11.07 a.m., a car is dispatched. Patrolman Frank Perkins and Will Fitzgerald arrive on the scene. You got to feel for these poor cops a little bit. Like, they think that they're going to deal with a 
drunk naked woman, which I also would not super want to deal with. I feel like in college I had to deal with a couple of those. Not my favorite thing. That's fair. That's fair. That's, you know, but, but like, this is a little different. Instead, they find this horribly mutated body. Little surprising. Little surprising. At 11.30 a.m., word comes in that there is a, quote, man down, which is one way of putting it. Uh, Will Fitzgerald would later say about it, the first thing we thought was that it was a mannequin. Again Again. with a mannequin, yes. That someone was playing a trick on us because there was no blood. Huh. Then we realized what the hell we had. We started calling our supervisors, telling them this was something big. From there, uh, a lot of reporters start showing up. So we do not have a super well-contained crime scene. Sure. One of the reporters that shows up is a woman named Agnes Aggie Underwood. What a name. Oh, my goodness. Right? Uh, so Aggie, and I have to say, I think Aggie's my new hero. She worked for the Los Angeles Evening Herald Express and was a 100% total badass. Hell yeah. So this is 1947. You don't have tons of female reporters already, let alone crime reporters. Sure. Her colleagues describe her as being kind of a dude, like she was one of the guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a piece I read on her in L.A. magazine that said uh, she'd hid a woman who was wanted for murder at her house while her daughter's Girl Scout troop was meeting because she was like, bitch, I'm getting this story myself. Oh, my God. That's amazing. And I'm not going to let the cops or any other reporter get this before me. Wow. Would you like a Thin Mint? That is dedication. It's dedication. Apparently, she also, like, slapped an editor in the face with a fish once as part of a prank. <laughs> yeah. No, I love her. I love her. I, She's I, great. She sounds awesome. Love Agnes. She described the body. It, the body, had been cut in half through the abdomen under the ribs. The two sections were 10 or 12 inches apart. The arms bent at right angles at the elbows were raised above the shoulders. The legs were spread apart. There were bruises and cuts on the forehead and the face, which had been beaten severely. The hair was blood matted. Front teeth were missing. Both cheeks were slashed from the corners of the lips almost to the ears. The liver hung out of the torso and the entire lower section of the body had been hacked, gouged and unprintably desecrated. It showed sadism at its most frenzied. Jeez. Which like, I love that phraseology sadism at its most frenzied. That's a just very dramatic way of putting things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I enjoy that. Uh, the body was also nude. She was posed with her eyes open. Those weren't the only injuries either. She had marks on her wrists and her ankles that suggested she had been strung up while alive. Oof. And she had been slit from her navel down to her groin. Oof. Uh, and as we were mentioning, the crime scene photos are readily available, which you've seen them. Yes, I did at the Museum of Death. At the Museum actually. of Death. And mm-hmm. they are quite graphic. Pretty brutal. Yep. Uh, 
they're available on the internet. These are not ones that we will be posting to our Instagram. So mm-hmm. yeah, if you're interested in taking a look for yourself, again, they are not hard to come by, but be warned, they are they are quite distressing. Something I found really interesting, though, a lot of the time with some of these tragic murders, you have people commenting, uh, you know, like, oh, things like this just don't happen in our neighborhood. <laughs> sure. It was Los Angeles. So things like this happen in their neighborhoods. <laughs> Uh, and it's 1947, so there was 119 murders in L.A. The day of her murder, there were two other murders, 13 robberies and 47 burglaries. Welcome to Los Angeles. <laughs> Welcome to Los Angeles, ladies and gentlemen. So not too far from where they found her body, 10 years prior, there had been a trio of tragic murders. Dubbed, really? Yeah. The Three Babes of Inglewood. I've never heard of that before. It was, this was, honestly, this was the first time I'd heard of it was, was, uh, it, it kept popping up in my research is another thing that happened like within a block or two of, of this spot. It was three young girls. It's super sad. Three young girls, ages seven to nine. They'd been abducted, oh. sexually assaulted oh, and no. strangled. Yeah. Oh, no. And they caught the person who did it. Well, that's good. Uh, but like a lot of things happen. And, and post-war L.A., there was a lot of things happening. And even by all those standards, this was considered incredibly grotesque. Yeah. So the body's taken to the coroner. At this point, she is still labeled a Jane Doe. The coroner determines she is a female. Between the... Uh, she is a female. Five, six to five, 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 six, about 118 pounds. Initially, he thought she was between the ages of 15 to 20, but it was a little hard to determine. The lacerations on her face were made with a knife, including the, the gash across her mouth. Her teeth were in very poor condition. She had a lot of cavities. They were in states of decay. The skull was not fractured, but it showed evidence of severe blows, and the injuries to her face were all done while she had still been alive, including the cut across her mouth. Uh, And it looks like the trauma of that is what killed her, and that the rest of the injuries were inflicted after death. Oh, jeez. A long butcher's blade or carving knife were what uh, they believe had been used to sever her body, and all of the cuts were clean. She had flesh removed on her left thigh. Her body had been thoroughly cleaned and drained of all blood. So someone had to have like known what they were doing. In 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 some capacity, yes. Hmm. Um and we'll we'll be getting into why that's relevant in just a moment. Um So she had, I'd mentioned, you know, she had ridges on her wrist and her ankles. Mm -hmm. She also had marks on her neck, but she, her cause of death was not strangulation. That sometimes gets misreported because she had marks on her neck. Mm -hmm. She had been killed somewhere else and deposited in, in the lot sometime in the last 24 hours is when it looked like she had, had been murdered. As of 8.30 a.m. that morning, no one had reported seeing anything at all in the lot. So the body had to have been dropped off sometime between around 8.30 a.m. and about 10.30 or so when when it was reported, 10.30, 10.55 or so when, when um, she was discovered. 
Uh, I'll also add, so I read John Douglas and Mark Olshaker's book, The Cases That Haunt Us, mm-hmm. and, and he commented the time of death had been the last 10 hours and that there was evidence to suggest refrigeration had possibly been used to preserve the body. Oh. I will say I didn't find a whole lot of other things that reference that. I just, John Douglas, you know, an FBI profiler, I was like, oh, maybe he knows something I don't. So I want to put that out there as something I read, but I didn't find reported elsewhere. Do you think that maybe the reason she was cut in half was to put her in a refrigerator? Uh, You mean to fit? Yeah. Um, I think... The reason to cut her in half is is to make a statement. Okay. I mean, it may I have helped, but... More logistically. <laughs> the whole display of the body is so deliberate. This is yeah. not somebody who was hiding anything. This is somebody who was putting a, a very mutilated body out in the open. It may have been to help with draining the blood, possibly. Because hmm. you, you know, draining a body... Of blood, if you're draining it in two sections, like the the, especially if you think about being hung from the ankles and being hung from the wrists and all the blood draining out, that's going to be easier than, uh, you know, you'd have to make marks elsewhere if you're going to drain all the blood. So I think it huh. had probably more to do with with blood draining, if I'm if I'm being honest. Um, but all of this, I mean, kind of to your earlier point, this had to be done by somebody who, to some extent, knew what they were doing. Right. The cuts were too clean. Uh, the initial assumption is that it had to have been a doctor or someone who was experienced handling corpses, which there's debate now as to whether or not that's true. Uh, some people pointing out that if, if you know how to butcher an animal or, or so maybe an experienced hunter, Mm -hmm. uh, would, would know how to, to make the cuts and to do something similar. Uh, I will say. Harry Hansen, who would be one of the lead detectives on the case, he would later say at a grand jury hearing, I have a little pet theory of my own. I think that a medical man committed that murder. I base that conclusion on the way the body was bisected. It is unusual in the sense that the point at which the body was bisected is, according to the eminent medical men, the easiest point in the spinal column to sever. He hit it exactly. Oh. So, like, it wasn't... This guy didn't get lucky. Whoever severed her, severed her at a point where... Like, I hate to say it, getting through the spine would be quite easy. (laughs) And you'd have to have some kind of knowledge of anatomy, at least, I would think. To know where to go. Yeah. To know where to go, unless it was just purely coincidental. But uh, the cuts were so clean. Yeah. Can't be coincidental if it was that clean. But I, I also come back to, again, somebody possibly who, who had experience with butchering or, or had experience uh, as a hunter might know how to do these things as well. Sure. So they, they caught a break pretty quickly. Uh, they were able to identify this Jane Doe. She had been arrested at one point, which led to her fingerprints being on record. She was identified as 22-year-old Elizabeth Short. She had a rose tattoo on her upper left leg. So you remember that piece of flesh? That was cut off? That was cut off. That's what was removed, was the rose tattoo. Didn't want to identify her. They didn't want to identify her, or at least not quickly, because I I feel like if the end goal was was to really hide her identity, there was a lot of other steps they didn't take. Because, again, fingerprinting, it, it took them very little time. 
to sure. get the ID because she'd been she'd been arrested. Uh, her mother, Phoebe May Short, lived in Medford, Massachusetts. But now, beyond notifying the family, the police are trying to piece together what they can about Elizabeth, her life, and how she would become the victim of this absolutely horrific murder. So Elizabeth Short, known as Betty to her friends and family, was born on July 29th of 1924. She was the third of five girls. Oh, dang. I was thinking of that line in Fiddler. Five daughters? Um, I mean, five children. Let's face it. It doesn't matter if they're boys or girls. Five children just sounds exhausting. It's just a lot. It's a lot. Uh, Born to Cleo and Phoebe Short in Boston, Massachusetts. When Elizabeth was about three, the family moved to Maine. It didn't last very long. They moved back to Massachusetts pretty quickly, settling in Medford. Medford would be where she spent most of of the rest of her childhood. Mm -hmm. Tragedy struck the family when in 1930, after the stock market crashed, uh, it led to a loss of of most of the family's money. Cleo had worked as, he like designed golf courses? Oh, wow. Yeah, sure. But, you know, post-stock market crash was not necessarily a huge call for that. Yeah. So his car was found abandoned near a bridge. Oh, dang. the assumption was he took his own life. Oh, no. So this family, you know, five girls and the mom move into this tiny little apartment. Phoebe finds work as a bookkeeper to try and support her family. But uh, it was a struggle. They really struggled financially. And and Elizabeth had some of her own struggles growing up. Uh, her mother described her as she was the manic depressive type. Gay one minute and blue the next. Those that knew her when she was younger recalled uh, she was always very attractive. She turned heads. She was described as the prettiest of her sisters. A former boyfriend had said of her, she wanted to be someone famous. She had stars in her eyes, dreams rather than plans. I think of her as a very beautiful but very private person with a sadness about her, a void, something missing. Hmm. She struggled with ill health during her youth, too. She had a lot of lung problems. She had asthma. She had severe bronchitis. Uh, When she was about 15, she had surgery on her lungs. And uh, this led to the doctors recommending she spend her winters in a warmer climate. Mm -hmm. So she was sent to Florida to to start spending her winter time. which, I mean, anyone who spent any winter in Massachusetts are like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> Massachusetts it's winters. It's a little chilly there. It's a little chilly. It's a little chillier than it gets in uh, Seattle, Washington. That's for sure. Yep. She dropped out of high school her sophomore year, and she spent the next couple of years living in Medford with her family during the year and then spending her summers in Florida. In 1942, Elizabeth's about 18 years old now, and the family received a little bit of a shock. Uh, they are informed that, hey, y'all. Cleo, not as dead as they thought. Oh, I think I've heard this story, actually. This is familiar. I knew this. Yeah, he faked his death. That's so messed up. It's for so many reasons. Like, this is a guy who's like, "Mm, I'm not feeling this anymore. I'm going to abandon my five children. 
That's and pretend I'm dead. That's so messed up. So messed up. Like, honestly, I have everything I read about him. I'm just so unimpressed. <laughs> um, so he's living in California now. And and uh, Elizabeth's like, you know what? OK, can I come out to California and maybe try to get work and and try it out there. And, and Cleo was like, yeah, sure. Come on out. But it, it didn't go over very well. They were not compatible living together. He didn't really approve of her lifestyle, which I'm, she's like 18. What? <laughs> also, he freaking abandoned her. Like, yeah. I would imagine she's already probably resentful toward him. Like, one, like, dude, you can't judge someone else's behavior when you walked out on you your family. Your own death. You, yeah, you didn't just abandon them. You faked your own death, so they think they you yeah. were dead. He has no room. No. And like she's she's 18, you know? So she wants to go out with her friends or whatever. She's a kid. Sure. Of course she wants to go out with her friends. And she's a pretty kid. Like, yeah. Why not? Why not? So she gets a job nearby at Camp Cook, uh, the Air Force Base. She didn't work there very long. There was a rumor that she was assaulted while she was working on the base. There was a man she'd been dating known. I only saw references to him as Sergeant Chuck. And he'd be get court-martialed. And Elizabeth left shortly after. Um, This is another thing that I found really interesting. So, like, when you think about the Black Doll, you think about how she's portrayed in the media. What comes to mind? Um, without knowing a lot of context, just mm-hmm. that she was this, like, dark-featured, fair, beautiful girl that wanted to make it in Hollywood and just probably trusted anybody and shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Um and tried to hang out at the ritziest spots to get discovered, as people at that time did. That's about it. All that I can remember and think of right now at this point it's, with my brain being no, tired. It's, that's kind of the image that puts that's put out there. And, and a lot of times uh, the media makes up – the media plays up like – the seductress, this temptress, this very femme fatale kind of thing, which again, Hey, she was 22 when she was murdered, like 22 years old. She's very, very young. Um, there's even people that, that write that she was a prostitute, Mm -mm. that she was this loose woman. This is absolutely not true. Uh, cause Okay, one, the evidence just doesn't support that. But two... Evidence. Evidence. We love evidence. But two, also, the way the media uses this to judge her and this narrative that, that you know, she was bad and got what was coming to her or she, she put herself in the situation because she was dating and going out and having sex. Again, there's, there's nothing to show that she was particularly... I, I don't even know how to say it. Like, promiscuous. But even if she was, who the fuck cares? Who cares? Yeah. Let like, her live her life. Let her live her life. And it's, it's I think, because the narrative shift when they identified her and they started, like, learning more about her into this, she was this temptress. She was the seductress. This femme fatale. And, like, why do Americans need a perfect victim? Because it sells. And so does sex. Right. Uh, but in order to, I, I mean, it's, it's a, a good looking at some of the recent cases that have had a lot of attention brought to them through the media. Same. It's, mm-hmm. it's exactly the same. Um, there was a, a interview, Detective Hansen, who I'd mentioned earlier, was um, 
the one of the lead detectives on the case, he gave an interview in 1971 and he said, like, oh, it makes me mad even reading this. He said she just asked for trouble. Ugh. She probably went too far this time and just set some guy off into a blind berserk rage. Um, I'm sorry. Uh-huh. Control yourself, man. Yeah, I guess I guess what my takeaway is, women pro tip, if you don't want to get murdered, don't talk to men ever. Sure. Don't hang out with them. Don't be associated with them <laughs> because they can't he, control themselves. They can't control themselves. He might think that you're interested when you're not. And so, of course, his only course of action is to murder. brutally murder you because boys That's, will be boys. Oh, that makes me very angry. Oh, <laughs> I the righteous rage so often reading about things. I. Mm, um, it, it made me really mad and it, ra- it made me really mad because not only again, is it spreading a lot of misinformation, but we are, we are demonizing women for their sexuality. We are demonizing women for being women. It's gross. And maybe just don't murder people. Yeah. Um, I mean, like there was a woman who worked with her who actually said, she never visited over the counter with any of the boys, always refused to date them. She was one of the few girls in my employ who didn't smoke or occasionally take a drink, and she lived in the camp and never went out nights. So where's the problem? People suck. That's the problem. Ugh. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, so she moves to Santa Barbara. Uh, September of 1943, that's when she was arrested. That's our, our, our fingerprints on file. She was arrested for underage drinking, which again, she's like 19. She just 19. Yeah. That's what 19 year olds do. Fair. Uh, but I will say this is where some of her wandering starts to really take into effect. Uh, she didn't have a permanent address of her own at this point. She, she would go back home after she was arrested. She was sent back to Massachusetts, mm-hmm. but she didn't stay very long. She went back to Florida. In December of 1944, she met Major Matthew Gordon Jr. Fell major. head over heels. Major, Major, Major Gordon. Uh, they may have even been engaged. She wrote a oh. lot of letters implying they were engaged. She referenced it. He tragically died in a plane crash in 1945. And this sent her in a little bit of a spiral. And she started seeing this other man, but she even wrote later, perhaps Matt was my man. That is why I've been so miserable. That's so sad. By July of 1946, she's in the L.A. area and... uh, This is mostly where you start to get those reports that she is a wannabe aspiring actress. Let's look at that. Sure. It is certainly possible. Uh, Her former boyfriend, remember, had talked about her wanting to be famous. But I think his comment, she had dreams rather than plans, is really important. I would totally buy the idea of being an actress may have been appealing for somebody who's looking for glamour, who's looking for a certain lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, she has no known acting jobs or credits to her name. This talk of her doing all this extra work, there's nothing to back that up. Other than she may have been writing home to her mother she was doing this. Okay. But it looks like none of that was actually true. Interesting. So this is another part of the lore that gets reported, but is kind of misleading. Interesting. This is also where 1946, this is when she she picked up her moniker, the Black Dahlia. 
She used to hang out at a local pharmacy in Long Beach, and the druggist there, Arnold Landers, he would get interviewed later, and he said, she'd come to our drugstore frequently. She'd usually wear two-piece beach costumes, which left her midriff bare. She'd wear the lacy... She'd wear the black lacy things. Her hair was jet black, and she liked to wear it up high. She was popular with the men who came in here, and they got to calling her the Black Dahlia. Huh. So she'd been dyeing her hair. She was not naturally, uh, she did not naturally have black hair. She was dyeing her hair. She liked to wear black clothes. And uh, in 1946, there was a movie called The Blue Dahlia. It was a oh. very popular movie. So it was a play on that name. I get it. That's so interesting. I feel like I I thought she was just named the Black Dahlia after she was murdered. I didn't realize that she had that nickname in life. Yeah. Most people, it's it's a really common misconception. Um, the newspapers kind of globbed onto it, mm-hmm. partially because flower nicknames I were mean, really popular for, well, yeah. for, for murders. There was a, a number of murders at the time that had flower nicknames. Interesting. Um, but even like like her hair had started to uh, like the roots were showing by the time she was murdered. She couldn't afford to to dye it again. Was the theory? The newspapers just really globbed onto it and started running with it. Hmm. But uh, yeah, no, she had that nickname prior to her death. Interesting. So this timeline takes us about six months before her death. Okay. Police are trying to piece together. What was happening right before the murders? Where was she? Who was she living with? Who might have been seeing her? They still haven't informed her mother. Oh. In a piece of truly gross and disgusting behavior, a reporter for the Los Angeles Examiner called her mother. Oh, my God. Said she'd won a beauty contest. (gasps) Are you serious? So he could get all of the details about Elizabeth and her life and who she was. That is so messed up. It's so messed up. And this poor woman, her mother, is is happily talking and sharing stories about her daughter and all of her accomplishments before having a bomb dropped on her that her daughter is not just dead, but her, her daughter was brutally brutally murdered so did the reporter break that news to her after interviewing her yep oh my god that is so messed up yep it's disgusting it's utterly utterly disgusting holy crap that's terrible she i i hope she did something awful to this guy Sadly, she didn't. The The <sighs> newspaper ended up flying her out and like, so she, cause she had to come out to identify the body, which she really didn't want to do because she wanted to remember her daughter as she was. Uh, but it just like, it makes me hate people. I already hate people. It makes me hate people even more. It just reinforces it. It reinforces my people hatred. <laughs> I'm, I'm correct in this. So police figure out, uh, Elizabeth had been staying with a family that had met her outside of a movie theater and realized she was homeless and felt bad for her. So they invited her to, to stay with them for a bit. I think she stayed with them for about a month. God bless the 1940s. Hey, you need a place to stay? Come crash on my couch. They did get kind of tired of her crashing on their couch and not really doing uh, anything. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I could that I could I could see that. They were kind of trying to find a way to get her not on their couch anymore. They said she left with a man named Red. And Red was going to be taking her to LA. 
So this is a promising lead. This is something that the police can use, and they ID him pretty quickly. 25-year-old Robert Manley. What a name. <laughs> what a name. Does he live up to it? We don't know. What a manly, what a manly, what a wild, wild manly. <laughs> uh, he was a, a clamp salesman. <laughs> what? That's, That's a so thing. specific. That's a thing. You, he, he sold clamps. What kind of clamps? I don't know. It just said clamps. I think of like in a medical thing. Nurse, clamp. Maybe that. I don't know. Probably like for like construction. I don't know. Clamps. He sold clamps. Wow. Uh, but he's now Maybe. the number one suspect. So January 19th, they arrest him. Mm-hmm. So Robert talks about how he knew Elizabeth. He met her on December 16th of 1946. He was in San Diego on a business trip. Robert, our friend Robert Manley, Robert's married. Ooh. Robert has a new baby at home. Oh, no. Robert. <laughs> Robert. That's not very manly, Robert. No. He said things were hard. It was really hard. Having a wife who just had a baby was really hard on him. Wow. I feel so bad for Mr. Clamper. I feel so bad for Robert. Yeah. Uh, So he sees this very pretty girl standing in the corner and he chats her up. Uh, He would give an interview in 1947 where he'd say, I asked her if she wanted to ride. She turned her head and wouldn't look at me. Finally, she turned around and asked me if I didn't think it was wrong to ask a girl in a corner to get into my car. (laughs) Fair. I was like, yeah, that's, that's, that's legit, girl. I said, yes, but I'd like to take you home. So she got in the car. According to Robert, the two only kissed. Uh, He said he would wire her when he was back in San Diego. And he did. And she asked him to drive her to L.A., which he does. Picks her up at the the, the apartment he was that um, picks her up at the apartment she was staying at and, and they head out. They got a motel for the night. He said Elizabeth got upset, uh, said it was her time of the month and she wasn't feeling very well. Fair. They left the motel to continue their trip. And he said she continued to be in a bad mood. And he said. She told him that uh, she was going to be meeting her sister and then fly back to Boston. She wanted him to drop her off at the Biltmore Hotel Mm -hmm. at 6.30 p.m. on January 9th. She would be seen leaving the hotel at about 10 p.m. that night. This would be the last confirmed sighting of Elizabeth Short. Not the Cecil Hotel, just to clarify. Absolutely 100% not. The Biltmore. The Biltmore even has a drink named after her, which is kind of in poor taste in my opinion, but whatever. That's fair. But I just think that's funny that I, I, that's the one fact when we were doing the Cecil, people were like, oh, it's the last place that she saw. No, it's the Biltmore. It was the Biltmore. It's absolutely the Biltmore. Yep. Um, Robert Manley actually had an alibi for the, the night she was murdered and passed a couple polygraphs. So he was officially cleared of involvement in her death. So police are like, all right, there's like a week there where she's not accounted for from when she was last seen to when her body showed up. Where was she? The press are still at it. The press tracked down her trunk, have it delivered to their office, but that, wasn't much to really go on there. Sure. On January 21st, the editor of The Examiner, Jimmy Richardson, says he got a phone call from a man saying he was the killer and he was going to be sending him something in the mail. Huh. Things that she had in her handbag. 
Interesting. On January 23rd, a letter is intercepted, which is addressed to the examiner and other newspapers. And, like, this goes full on creepy. The address is not written. It was made from cutting out letters and words from newspaper ads. Oh, it's one of those. One of those classy. Classic murder letter. Classic murder. Okay, this is a complete tangent. But did you, there was a period of time when I was in elementary school where like, we used to write notes and letters to each other this way. We'd be like each other's secret pile and we'd cut them out. Was that a thing that just my friends and I did? Is this a universal thing children do? I'm laughing do? because you started so young. I'm so impressed. <laughs> okay, apparently this is not somebody ever. If, if you yourself as a child did something similar, please write us and let us know that Kim is not the only weirdo out there. I mean, I didn't do that. I did other stupid stuff, but sure. not that. But not that. <laughs> no. Fair. Fair. Uh, all right. So back to the envelope. The phrase heaven is here. The here was all capitalized. You can't see the the, the gestures jazz, I'm making. I'm making, I'm making fun jazz hands. It was clipped from an ad for Stairway to Heaven. Um, this phrase was also on the envelope. Also In- poor taste. Also <laughs> poor taste. Inside the envelope was Elizabeth's social security card. Oh, dang. Her birth certificate. Pictures. And an old address book with some pages missing. It also had the words, here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow, on the envelope. They tested the envelope for prints. The killer had used gasoline to rub the contents off. Apparently that gets rid of fingerprints. That's a thing. Really? Yeah. Take note, everybody. If you need to get rid of fingerprints on something, rub some gasoline on it. A lot of this isn't that useful outside of confirming that it came from the killer. Like, the, the killer had to have been the one to, to send this initial letter. That, that right. is not in question. The address book, though, there could be a clue there. There's about 75 men listed in the book. So detectives, like, they start going just man by man to question them and see how they're connected. But, again, really not much came of that. Uh, the owner of the address book, it was it, it had the name Mark Hansen. So they looked at him as being a suspect because obviously he had to have known her if she took his address book to use as her own. That's fair. He was a 55-year-old nightclub and theater owner from Denmark, mildly obsessed with her, but he was also cleared for, with a polygraph exam. He's not left everyone's suspect lists, though, so press save on that name. Okay. Because we'll be coming back to him in the second part of this episode. Cool. Within a day, another letter arrived postmarked January 26, 6.30 p.m. It's written in a new ballpoint pen, and it says, Turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m., had my fun at police, Black Dahlia Avenger. Which is the worst MCU what? character name ever. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack here. So um, if it is from the killer, he is allegedly turning himself in in a few days, which I 100% believe. Fully. <laughs> Fully, yeah. Uh, the other thing of note, though, the, the fact it was written in a ballpoint pen. So this was a cool detail I picked up from, um, I'm going to say her name incorrectly, and I apologize, Pew Eatwell. 
she wrote Black Dahlia Rose Red, which was uh, a fantastic resource. Oh, I have that. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't read it yet, but I have that book. It's it's a really really great source. Uh, she has a very specific view on who she thinks the killer is, but all of the the research is is top notch. Nice. Um, by 1947, ballpoint pens, they're pretty rare. They've only been commercially distributed for a couple of years. Oh. They were, up until that point, they'd pretty much been only been given to officers in the war. Mm. And to buy one cost about $12.50, which is about $150 today. Holy crap. Yeah. So you're not just, like, rolling over to your Rite Aid and grabbing a pack of pens for $2. Like... This isn't something huh. just anyone would have. Sure. Uh, Black Dolly Avenger, how the letter was signed also. It's how a lot of the letters were signed. It is also the name of one of the many books written on this case that we will also be talking a little bit more about in the second part of this nice. episode because it focuses on a very, very specific suspect. So to the shock of probably no one, nobody showed up. <laughs> sure. Yeah. A letter would arrive on the 30th. This one, not written in pen. This was back to our creepy letter cutout form. And it said, have changed my mind. You would not give me square deal. Dahlia killing justified. JK lol. It's like, I feel like you should have just written JK lol at the end of that. Well, it's also like, I want to know, what's the square deal for for murdering someone? What do we consider a square deal? I have questions. I have questions. I'm asking for a friend. What's a square deal? (laughs) It's a circular deal? Sure, yeah. Uh, Not too long after the letter was received, there was also a phone call that said, don't try to find short girl's murderer because you won't. Like that's ever stopped the cops before. I just think it's funny that he called her short girl. Yeah, because like that could mean a couple things. (laughs) I'm just going to make a bad poor taste joke and I'm going to refrain. Oh, no. Um... I mean, here's the thing, though. Like any high-profile case, you've got dozens and dozens and dozens of letters and phone calls coming in, some that are tips, some that are, I'm confessing, I did it. Sure. Uh, Fun fact I learned, though. So this case is very, very cold at this point. Right. There is still a detective assigned to it who apparently gets about one call a week still about this case. Dang. Like currently today? Currently today. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. No, that was one of those facts where I was like, seriously? I didn't realize you meant like right, like as yeah. of today. There, It is still, because it's, it's, there's no statute of limitations in California on murder. Right. It's considered an open case, a cold case, but an open case. So they do have an officer that has it on their books as being their case, and they still get phone calls. Holy uh, shit. The phone calls tend to range anywhere from somebody who thinks they've solved it to I have a repressed memory and I think I know who did it. It was a family member to tips to, I mean, yeah. Dang. Yeah. That's wild. Uh, false confessions were also a huge, 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 huge thing. There was a lot of people who confessed this crime, but a lot of them, like some of them weren't even in the state at this point. So you're like, okay, okay. Uh, sure. Her shoe and purse would be found in a trash depot on East 25th Street, and they were identified by more than one person. They were definitely hers, but again, no prints found on them. Sure. Three weeks after her body was found, another woman was found murdered. 
On February 10th of 1947, the body of Jean French was found naked and murdered. She had been brutally beaten and stomped to death. Stomped? Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Um, Even more bizarre, though, was that written on her stomach in red lipstick was the message, fuck you, BD, and Tex. Okay. So, again, let's unpack this. Was this murder connected to the Black Dahlia? Was BD meant to be Black Dahlia? Black Dahlia. Dahlia. Huh. Jean had dark hair. She was female. That's kind of where these similarities end. Um, Jean was about about 45 years old, and she was a nurse. Uh, Some have pointed out that the BD could actually have been PD. Like police department? Police department. Huh. And Jean had known, she had spent some time in Texas, so the text could have been referenced to that. Uh, It also, I mean, it could have been designed to deliberately mislead somebody, deliberately mislead the police into thinking it was connected to Black Dahlia. What do you think? I feel like this is a good example of people seeing a case get blown up publicly and wanting to participate in it or get attention the same way that this case is getting attention. Mm -hmm. So someone else who's also pretty messed up or the same person wanting to go wild and get away with it is trying to get publicity and trying to confuse people or Mm -hmm. just be a part of the whole circus of everything. And Mm -hmm. that's what it, to me, it seems like, but it could be either or could be either or. Uh, <clears throat> police are grasping at straws, though. They're, they're, uh, and the Jean French murder is, to this day, also unsolved. Dang. Uh, they're trying to find any lead, anything they can look at, anything they can investigate. They looked into 300 USC medical students, just in case. Nothing. <sighs> Damn. 13 letters in total came in, signed Black Dahlia Avenger. Uh, it is unknown if they were actually from the killer or not, if all of them were. We know we know at least the one with her belongings was. We don't really know about the rest of them. It's kind of like some of the Zodiac messages that came in. Was it them? Yeah. Was it not? Eh, who knows? Uh, fingerprints were found on one letter, but no matches were ever found. And again, we don't know for sure that the letter actually was from the killer. Right. Suspects are popping up. Theories, conspiracies. The legend is growing. But there's not enough evidence to arrest anyone. Evidence. Evidence. But where does that evidence take us now? Because through the years, many people have been convinced they have solved this case. They know who killed her. Someone they knew. A relative. Something they witnessed. But what's true? In part two of our two-part episode, we're going to look more in depth at the suspects some of the conspiracies, and whether or not Elizabeth Short's ghost is still hanging around. Ooh, spooky. So stay tuned. Stay tuned for the spooky tales of Black Dahlia. (laughs) And then brings us to... It was very spooky. It was so spooky. I can't handle it. I'm like dying from spooky right now, Gabby. I'm You're dying. Spooked. I'm, I'm spooked. She is the spook because she died. <laughs> and this brings us to. 
Critics Corner. Creepy Critics Corner. Kim, what you watching? I actually picked up last night uh, the first episode of CBS's new sitcom called Ghosts. Oh, I haven't heard about it. It was, I, I don't, you know, I'm not going to lie. I don't watch a lot of CBS in general. Me neither. Uh, I'd seen this advertised somewhere and it looked kind of cute. Mm-hmm. The basic premise of it is this, this old house where all of these ghosts are hanging out. And the, the house is inherited by um, this young woman and her husband. And uh, she has a little bit of an accident. And when she... She falls into a coma for a couple of weeks, and and when she wakes back up, she realizes she can now see all of these ghosts. Oh, so it's it's quite cute. It's very silly. It's it's uh, it's just kind of light and 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 kind of charming. And either again, there's only been one episode, uh, but uh, I'm I'm I'm. Intrigued. Uh, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm gonna stick with it. it if nothing else, it's kind of nice to have something lighter. To yeah. watch, yep, yep. Uh, it, it, with everything going on, so so far it's it's pretty promising. It airs on CBS, uh, and so it's it's worth checking out. It's it's apparently uh, a American remake of a BBC series called Ghosts. So it it kind of makes me want to check out the BBC series as well. I was just going to say, that sounds interesting. I'd watch that. Yeah. So I'm going to, I, I didn't realize that until I, I looked the show up. And, uh, so now I, I kind of want to check out the, the BBC series and see how that compares and if I, I like it as well. But, uh, yeah, so ghost. And then, um, there's a new entry in the VHS series called VHS 94. Mm-hmm. And if you've never watched the VHS series before, they are an anthology series uh, where, I mean, each one, there's, I don't even know how many there's been at this point. There's at least three or four. And it basically, a story tied to the finding of VHS tapes. And each film is on its own VHS tape and stands alone. It has a wraparound story. And the the most recent one was released by Shudder the other day. And it's, it's, it's fun. It's fun. Um, I, I was never the biggest fan of the series, but I actually really enjoyed a couple of the segments on, on 94. There's a whole segment about this reporter going into the, the sewers to look for a rat King and all hail Ratma. That's all I'm going to say. All hail Ratma. So, uh, yeah, it's some of what I've been watching. It's, uh, I've, I've been a little on the busy side, so I haven't gotten to watch as much and I've not watched quite as many winners for 100 days of horror as of late so there you go that's fair what you been watching uh i've actually i mean i've continued to watch what we do in the shadows because it is so good and it is just truly getting better i Mm -hmm. i every time i watch it i'm like this show is the best there's no way it could get better and then a new episode comes out and it's better and i'm like how it's just it's just chef's kiss greatest show on tv i love it so much um the Baron is back this season, so that's very exciting. I won't say much else, but just watch it. Um, Doug Jones plays the Baron. You know, I who love Doug, Doug Jones. Jones. I love Doug Jones. Good hugger too. He is he's a fantastic just, hugger. He's in like every great movie. Oh yeah, like everything he's been in is wonderful. Yeah, but anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, Terrence actually put on a show last night from Hulu called Hellstrom. I don't know if you've heard about it. Oh, it's been on my list for a long time, but I've not as of yet 
gotten to it. It's interesting because it, it's a little, I think, overdone, a little overwrought mm-hmm. in the way that it's it's kind of told. I, it kind of gives me similar vibes to the show Evil that mm. I know I told you about a while mm-hmm. ago, which we also have kind of started picking up. We're just watching a bunch of random stuff right now mm. and like not being consistent with anything. So we're just genuinely confusing ourselves. Um, but Hellstrom is actually like... The first episode has a lot. It's a it packs a punch. Um, it's very long, but it has a lot of interesting information in it. So it's basically about this guy who is not a pastor or anything officially religious, but who is called in for exorcisms hmm. and who basically puts the people who think they are possessed in their place and calls them out on their huh. shit basically, if they are not actually possessed. But there's a weird thing that is kind of dangled that, like, he has some kind of power. Um, And you don't know if it's, like, what kind of supernatural it is. But the longer you watch it, the more you find out. And it's pretty complicated. Like, the backstory is pretty complex. But it's interesting. Um, Well done. There are uh, some pretty brutal scenes in it. Uh, but it's definitely got spooky vibes written all over it. Takes place in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, which is kind of cool. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was good. We started watching it. I think I can only watch it like max two episodes at a time just because it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also fully spaced that there is a new season of American Horror Story that just came out not oh, that yeah. long ago. And so I also started that. So mm-hmm. I watched the first two episodes of that. I'm just stoked that Macaulay Culkin's in it. Sure. Yeah. So that's pretty exciting. But it looks pretty good so far. I mean, it's kind of like vampire-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like it's pretty typical American horror story in the sense of like the overall concept is cool, but there's a lot of fluff. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's it's like you want to get past the fluff to know what's going on, but it just takes so damn long to get there. Yeah. <laughs> that, like I, that's that's where I'm at with that. But um, getting into this more spooky things, I know I avoid it most of the year because uh, my fiance gets nightmares. So right. <laughs> trying to like control what I'm watching with him. But uh, I guess it's okay now. So I'm gonna take advantage and watch all the spooky shit. So. Yeah, that's what I've been watching. Um, nice. Yeah. Nice. So well done with this research this time. I'm really excited to hear about next week's episode for <laughs> our next, not next week, not next, next week episode. <laughs> our hol- Basically, this episode's coming out right before Halloween. And then the next episode's going to come out right after Halloween. So it's basically like a Halloween sandwich uh-huh. of the Black Dahlia. Of the Black Dahlia. <laughs> It's a Black Dahlia <laughs> spooky sandwich is what it is. Um, so I'm really excited to hear the ghoulish story attached to her and all that jazz. So looking forward to that. But uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, hope you have a great Halloween if you don't hear from us before then. Um We are super excited to share uh, more episodes with you coming this year. But until then, check out our 
um, Instagram is uh, Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. We have mm-hmm. our website, which is ghoulishtendencies.com. All of our show notes, all of our um, references, all of our social medias are on there. We also have a Patreon. If you feel generous, like contributing to our efforts, we really appreciate it. We also have some fun bloopers on there of all the things that we erase on these episodes so that you don't really hear how ridiculous we are. We definitely trip over our words. It's a good time. <laughs> so that's in uh, the Patreon. Patreon. And we also have uh, a rating and reviewing system on Apple Podcasts. So if you like mm-hmm. what we do, but you can't like financially contribute, head on over to Apple Podcasts for rating and review. We very much appreciate any reviews you'd love to give us. Well, having said that, thank you for listening and stay spooky.